This is Behind the Exploratory Lenses episode number 19. I made sure I said it correctly because there's been a couple times this season that I forget that I have to edit out because I'm either one episode ahead or one episode behind. But rest assured, this is the 19th episode. So yeah, let's talk about what went down in part one in a little bit more detail before I jump in to talk about probably the biggest news in NASCAR that's come out all season in my book. So yeah, college came and went. I was a University of Idaho student from 2013 to 2016. I, as you heard in the last episode when I had TJ Trangell, who you'll hear more about, but more in a lighter tone. Nothing all serious and personal like some of the stories that I brought up and some of the instances where I felt like I did not belong in that institution. But in that first part, I mentioned a couple people in there. I want to reiterate the people that I name, I have no issues with, per se. I really don't. If I mention people's names, I typically don't have a problem with, honestly. So the, the so bear in mind, when if you haven't heard it, you should listen to it, because this is probably the first and one of the very few times I'll talk about my college experience in a greater detail. When it comes to season two, I'll probably be more open about it, but not right now. In other words, there's one person that I did not name, that I won't name, and I don't have the courtesy to say who it is until in the foreseeable future, because it's really not worth my time talking about that person. As you heard, and if you again, if you haven't, go back to listen to it because it's important to listen to the first part to get a good idea of what the second part might become. But yeah, we, myself and the sports editor during senior year, fall 2016, played a major role as to why I graduated early. And as CJ said, you graduated. That's the most important thing out there is to graduate. And he mentioned that he did not graduate right out of the gate. Fortunately for myself, I did, but to each is their own. Because he went and had a different venture. He went to Nevada. He had multiple gigs and opportunities. And in the first bit of our second part of the interview, you'll hear him talk about the life of being an author and the progress it takes. And when I realized, and you're going to hear it from me, that I was a little bit disappointed. It's like, oh, it's going to take longer than I would hope. Because one of these days, I would like to release a memoir about my lifestyle. The question is, where do I find a definitive end? And also, who to talk to, who were who are more willing to openly accept by publication. It's going to take a minute. And I know probably another one that I love to have in Season 2 will probably mention the progress, the rigorous progress it takes to become an author. Just to have the book out, period. Because there are instances where a certain publication company will shut down in this certain book that is getting very close to being published doesn't come out in a it doesn't come out it never became a fruition it fell through so with that being said that ordeal with fall 2016 and why I feel like TJ and I relate in a great way is because we both had to deal with the circumstances and we both handled it differently and that's why that one encounter where he basically told the editors of the Argonaut including myself to stop bitching I know it wasn't directly towards me but I felt like I had to say what I said after the meeting that I'll take accountable even though I'm not the big reason. Well, I could have been, I could have not. But I wanted to owe up to it. Just because I knew and I know it has not been good vibes with, within our staff. It was very political, it was very personal, it got very intense. So much intense that 
that it really irritated me to absolute no end that that particular sports editor just only there for one semester basically bailed, basically left, uh, hung out to dry. And I took personal, personal offense to that. It's like, if you're going to be like, if you treated mo me like garbage, which that's how I felt, I was treated like absolute garbage because I stood up for what I believed in and cared about what I do to the point where at times there was no communication. There was nothing to talk about. There's no agreement or disagreement. It's just one trying to explain it and the other one doesn't listen. You'll get that in life. And all I know is that that time comes where that person wants help. I don't know if I'll be willing to openly help that person out because of what happened back in 2016. And with that person going away immediately after being all that of a disturbance and much of a distraction of where I wanted to polish my writing and also my career, gone. I was like, I was going to leave anyways because I was going to graduate early. And I used to say, maybe if I stayed another semester, things would have been much different, but it's already happened. Things happen for a reason. There's nothing to change about. Where do I stand in 2020 as far as whether or not I'm content of graduating early? I've been better about it. I've tried to accept the fact that had I stuck around another semester, my whole complexity of my career would have been different. Probably not for the better. Who knows? It might have taken me a little bit more longer of getting somewhere. Maybe not. You never know. It's happened. Nothing you can do. Straight and simple. And at the end of the day, if that person wanted to help, again, want to help me out, I'll be more than likely open to the idea. But there's going to be some reservations involved. Maybe someday I'll go into detail, in greater detail, what all of that stuff is. But I don't care right now to explain it. Speaking of that person going somewhere else, that happened to be Charlotte, North Carolina. And speaking of North Carolina, this is a great segue to talk about Michael Jordan. Now, what does this have to do with Michael Jordan in North Carolina with that person? Not much the person, more or less the transitional subject matter, which is Michael Jordan is going to be a majority principal owner of a NASCAR Cup Series team with Denny Hamlin. After all the long-awaited rumors, I didn't even talk about this. We're now going to see Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin become NASCAR owners, with MJ being the majority. Denny Hamlin will be the minority owner, as he'll be driving the number 11 FedEx Toyota Camry for Joe Gibbs Racing still to this very day. And who's going to be the driver? It is not other than Bubba Wallace, who will be going from Richard Petty Motorsports to now Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin's race team. Number, sponsorship, manufacturer, even the race team name are all to be determined. But let's face it, is anybody going to be surprised that it's going to be the number 23 Toyota. You got Danny Hamlin. He's involved. He's a Toyota car driver. Michael Jordan has the Jordan brand. He was number 23, except for the few times he was number 45. And the one time, number 12 in the NBA. If it's anything but 23, I'm going to be a little bit disappointed. But that's just a different subject for another time. The fact that Michael Jordan is going to be involved in a NASCAR team. This isn't the first time he's owning a race team in a major auto racing division. He did own an AMA Pro Superbike team back in the 2000s that I still remember to this very day as well. So this is his second go-around in the world of racing. But he's been a fan for as long as I've been born. Way longer before I was born. He has been a fan since the 1980s when he rooted for guys like Richard Petty. He's seen Dale Earnhardt and Cale Yarbrough race. No time here. There's a photo out there of him and the King back at Charlotte in 1982. So, so 
to say he's just only in it for the money. No, he's been a racing fan for the longest of time. Boy, Mayweather, on the other hand, that little project that supposedly was going to happen, it's not going to happen. Ping pong effect. We don't know. We don't know anything about that Floyd Mayweather team at this time. And I don't think it's ever going to happen in my book. But yeah, Wallace going to that team. That's probably going to be essentially a fifth Joe Gibbs card. In the eyes of many. That's a more of an upgrade from leaving RPM to go to Michael Jordan and Danny Hamlin's team. Then say going to the 96 team with Gaunt. In my eye, had he gone, had the 96 team went with Bubba and Bubba agreed, that would have been a downgrade. An absolute downgrade. You go from, like I mentioned, you go from the 43 team that has actually gotten better with Bubba, and then he goes to the 96 team that Daniel Suarez isn't going to come back for next year, and more than likely, and unfortunately, it's going to be Eric, more than likely, I fear that it's going to be Eric Jones in that 96, and I know, and there's some rumors out there that he's probably going to be in the 37 with JTG. That's not a good look for him either. They show some promise, but they have wrecked way too many race cars this season between both Ricky Stenhouse and Ryan Priest, who more than likely on the latter will be out the door. So no, I don't feel like that will be a good career move for Jones. Maybe the 96 would be more ideal. But the problem is, that 96 team is not good. It's, they're way behind the eight balls the first full season, to be fair. They're driving a one-year-old body Toyota with chassis that are passing over a decade. It's not a good look, but, we'll, but wherever Eric Jones ends up, I'm going to definitely mention it on Twitter, at TLT Files, where you should look me up, follow me for any NASCAR-related news or other thoughts involving sports, music, and vice versa, because after this episode, we'll only have one more left for season number one, and it's going to be focusing on what I've learned of being a 25-year-old, as I'll be 26 in, in about a week from now, when you're hearing this. Exactly a week, to be honest with you. No, not to be honest, to be frank with you, it is a fact that next Friday I turn 26. So I'll do one more episode talking about what I've learned being a 25-year-old. But first, let's focus on this episode. Overall, at the end of the day, this is a big move for NASCAR, big move for everyone involved. It's going to bring more eyeballs because it's Michael Jordan. He's the GOAT. You're going to have eyes on him regardless. He is the GOAT. He's 6-0 in the NBA Finals. Whereas LeBron James has six NBA Finals losses. He's the leader of the 3-6 Mafia. Anthony Davis made the game-winning shot. He proved himself. He's ready. He's in playoff mode. And that's what matters sometimes. If you want to be a legend, you want to rise to the ladder, be one of the greats in the NBA, you got to be super clutch. Sure, in fairness, LeBron did that with the block against the Warriors, the 73-9 Warriors, mind you. That's when he made the block. That was his playoff, definitive playoff moment. Right now, AD... Is on a run. It'll be interesting to see how the Lakers does going forward. Anything but an NBA Finals championship, let alone an appearance period, it's an absolute fail. If they don't do it, it's a fail. There's your little NBA talk, which I haven't really mentioned a whole lot in this season or ever. But, yeah, it's a big deal. With MJ and Denny working together and bringing Bubba on board. He has, like, what, $20 million worth of sponsorships with, like, Columbia, Cash App, and all of that stuff. He's bringing sponsorships. So I'd imagine this project is going to work on, like, other celebrities and athletes that tried to conquer NASCAR, like Dan Marino, for example, or Troy Eggman and Roger Staubach. I feel like this one may work if the cars are right, with MJ putting the money in, an investment on that team, Danny being the brains, 
it's gonna work, I feel like. I would not be terribly surprised if Bubba does real good. I expect him to be in the top 20 in 2021. Speaking of 2021, Ross Chastain will be going to Chip Ganassi Racing, which was the biggest news up to that point for about a few hours before another one came along. That is the rumors of Texas Motor Speedway losing a cup day in favor of CODA, Circuit of the Americas. But in return, Texas Motor Speedway and a Constellation Way gets the All-Star Race. I better hope, I fingers crossed, it's a rotational thing, not an annual basis to have Texas as the All-Star Race. It's different from Charlotte, but many people don't like Texas Motor Speedway. For me, it'll be easy to travel. It's like, hey, look, I get to do the All-Star Race a lot more easier than, say, Charlotte because of all the pricings and tickets and all the stopping lane. All of those things matter to me when it comes to flights. If it's non-stop, ideal. I only take non-stops. Multi-flights, forget about it. That's not feasible for me. It's just not. It's so much hectic. I'm already hectic enough to be in at the airport. It makes us so miserable. With the exception of Portland, it was actually went smoothly. One of the more better experiences I've had in airports. Everett is not terribly difficult either, but you only have certain venues to go. So, to each is their own thorn, to each their own poison, to each is their own Double-edged sword, one-sided, vice versa. Doesn't matter. Anyways, Coda having a NASCAR date is probably going to be significant for the track. But the big mystery is, what does it mean for the United States Grand Prix for Formula 1? And what does it mean for IndyCar? Because the track has been in financial peril. The Grand Prix has been in financial peril from the very beginning. Having NASCAR will certainly help. Maybe NASCAR will get involved in the track ownership. But again, would this mean the end of Formula 1 going to Austin? And will that make room for possibly going back to Indianapolis Motor Speedway? Which, that ended horribly due to Tiregate in 05. Their last F1 venue at Indy was in 2007. However, things have, a lot of, things have changed. Roger Penske is the owner. They obviously added the chicane that they wanted back in 05. The Michelin drivers and wanted at that time period. So, it's doable. I don't think Indy for Formula 1, again, is going to be a terrible idea. I think now with the track configuration and how things look, it can actually be problem-free. But the question is how many will show up due to that damaged goods that was the 2005 USGP. Which honestly, you could go back to the previous year as well where Michelin were starting to complain about how the tires handled that track. Because remember, they were going fast. When you go, they were going well over about 200 miles an hour. With the added chicane, you don't have to worry about tires you don't have to worry about the fast speed and tire adaptation it'll be interesting however there's a big difference at the time it was Bridgestone and Michelin this if they were to come back they have Pirelli tires so we'll see how Pirelli develops their tire for a track like Indianapolis that's unlike any other when it comes to the surface is concerned but I'm I'm open for Coda being on, on the NASCAR calendar I have no issue with it I'd love to go to Coda I hope the open wheel side of things is still attached but the all-star race at Texas Motor Speedway, let's hope it's the third circuit. But either way, I'll probably give it a look. As I mentioned, it's not a, a terrible option for me as far as traveling is concerned. It's one probably the easiest way to do an all-star race, if I were going to be honest. But that's all the talk from my end. Let's jump back to my interview with TJ Trenchell, where we start off talking about the books. And how is it being an author when it comes to creativity? publication, and we probably discuss a few more other things along the way. 
let's talk about kind of like where the passion of you becoming an author came about and also the interest of writing certain genres come from. My birthday is on Halloween, and so I've always sort of had an interest in things that are scary. Uh, but it's funny because when I was younger, like, for example, haunted houses. I went to a haunted house that was supposed to be for children when I was five, and it scared the tar out of me. And I didn't go to another one until I was 12. And it scared the tar out of me. And then when I was 15, I worked in one and scared other people. And that was fine. That was great. I loved that. And I've done that a couple of times, different places since then. But the whole ability to be able to inflict emotional responses on other people is addictive. And, and so that's really why I started writing fiction. I started doing that more like when I was in middle school to be able to put together a story that would elicit a reaction, whether it was fear or sadness or humor, whatever it was, I would go for that. And so even now, I like to say that my stories, I will try to scare you in a story because they're, they're horror stories. But if I can't scare you, I might try to make you laugh. And horror and humor are pretty closely related. And if neither of those things work, I'm going to make you cry. I will absolutely devastate you and break your heart just because you didn't toe the line with the first two things that I wanted to get out of you. And so I, you know, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and in my late teens and early twenties, I didn't get anything published. I got a job with a magazine an arts and culture magazine in Reno, Nevada. And I worked there for a few months and then that magazine folded, which is what happens to magazines. And then at that point I was like, okay, well, I'm missing something because I'm not getting my fiction published. I'll go back to back to school because um, I had not gone to college. So I went to a community college in Las Vegas and I got a lot of support for the writing. I got more into journalism at that point and I just really focused on fiction for a long time. And then when I got more into journalism, that took up all of my fiction writing time. When I was a full-time reporter in South Dakota, I don't think I wrote any fiction for like two years. And then I finished a book. And the, my first book, from the time that I wrote the first sentence to the time that I actually got it published was 10 years. Jeez, and that's, that, that's a that's, long time. It is, but it's not uncommon to have something like that happen and that 10 years again was a lot of change in my life between moves different schools different life situations and it wasn't constant work on the book either because it's a short book but eventually it was published and then my next book i had out a year later but it was mostly stuff that had already been written, short stories and things like that, that I started getting published in different places. And 
this third book, it's been a couple of years because I had, you know, I had a kid and I had a job and I had other things to do and work on, but I also wrote and finished another novel in between then. So just because it's my third book out does not mean it's the only thing I've written. So yeah, the real, I really started, like I said, really started writing seriously in my late teens. And yeah, I'm going to be 41 in October. And it's just, I stick to it because I, as I say, it's the only thing I'm good at. And that's not necessarily true, but it's the thing that I always come back to. Like if I end up doing something else for a little while and that thing ends, the writing, the fiction especially, is what I always end up coming back to. Ten years, um, and I don't know, <laughs> I was when I think, because it kind of reminds me of the fact, because I have this list of goals, which I haven't touched since the pandemic began, honestly. I postponed it through next year, so it makes it more feasible to accomplish it. So, I'll keep that in mind in case this memoir project doesn't launch right out of the gate. Because I don't, because that's the thing that I'm trying to learn from the publishing side of things, especially when it comes to books. Because I know I mentioned a few times about eventually writing a memoir about my life, with everything that has happened, with the attended message to showcase people on the autism side of things that things can be achievable, doesn't matter, or certain things I will not let people define me as. Because when it comes to the racing journalists, inside, I don't think they know or bother to know. Yeah. The kind of sacrifices I made, where I had got to a huge argument, not it became huge, which should have been with one of the Auto Week writers, because I, because the, the obviously that person did not know my journey enough to be telling me to stick in the local regionals when such local regional entities don't even bother to contact me. Yeah, I don't mean well bother to contact me. That doesn't sound right. They just <laughs> didn't contact me. Give me a reply. What are what their policy is as far as photos or writing and all of that to keep myself busy on the local end. Literally, yeah. not one respond. So it's like, yeah, you're telling me all of this, but not a. But I'm not having the best of luck. So I decided, you know what? He's falling out of my favor because when you mentioned about the magazine, here's I don't think I told you this that. One of my works was going to end up being in a magazine focusing on Greg Moore because it was going to be the 20th, 20 years of his passing, which lo and behold happened on Halloween Day. Speaking of Halloween, it was kind of... But I wanted to make it more about him, the driver, not what happened on that day. And we wanted, I was hoping that would be published before October 31st. That just obviously didn't work out. Communication with the with the magazine didn't work out at all. We hardly got through the next step because I get no replies. My editor in chief was mad at the writer that kind of told. Because here's what happened: one of the Auto Week writer told my editor in chief that he was looking for stories, and he was interested about my story that I was going to write about Greg Moore. So the editor in chief told me to write it different, like a short story almost about Greg's career. When I talked to Max Pappas or Dario Franchitti and those guys, talk. About Short, make it sweet to the point. I send him that. I would not get a response from the from that Auto Week writer, at all. Yeah. And I texted him multiple times. Nothing. And then when I told my editor in chief about it, he was mad at him. 
understandably. And then that never came out. The magazine, the physical copy went under after that. It's just a website now. So it's like, well, at least I was considered for a magazine. It would have been neat if it was if my story was on the what looked like it was the last issue, physical issue of Auto Week. Wouldn't that have been something? But <laughs> major publication is still on the loose, still elusive to me. And probably next year, I may write for more than one media outlet. At this moment, I'm going to probably end up writing for more than one to see if worrying for another one will boost my following. So honestly, when you look at my Twitter, I may have all of those followers, but only about three or four, including yourself, of course, tend to be the ones that sees my stuff and understands, or agree, or even interact. So it's like... Gotta yeah, love those numbers, but only a few. That's, that's pretty common. I have quite a few Twitter followers, too, and like, you know, not very many of them are buying the books. And you know, honestly, I'm not necessarily necessarily buying their books. So everybody's situation is different. Mine is that I have a limited budget. I can't buy everybody's book, and they're probably in that same situation. They gotta pick and choose. You know, in publication, magazines, books, is so complicated. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I had this other novel picked up by a publisher, a small independent publisher. They signed five, five books to publish in their first year. So admittedly, it was a new company. And they got one out before they closed down, one of those five. Um, thankfully, the contracts were such that all the rights came right back to me for the book so I could pitch it out to other places. And that's great. But at the same time, it's like, well, I still want the book to be out. What, you know? So, so that's, it's hard to go through something like that. You know, and I've had um, that magazine that I worked for in Reno, um, I had a big spread about the Burning Man Festival that was supposed to come out, and it, it never did because it was um, it was in production while the magazine was closing down. So, yeah, I know exactly how that goes. That's probably why how both of our careers sort of correlate towards different paths. Because, of course, the budget, that's definitely one of the key one of the instrumental factors sometimes on my end is trying to like see time per minute, see if where I stand with the budget and everything. Cause I got to keep it balanced. Cause like I mentioned, I'm, I'm planning to get my license some sooner than later. Hopefully within a week or two, fingers crossed this amount that I save is going to go towards a vehicle and then hopefully they're still around, but I need to get the license first and all. Yeah. But, and when it comes to sales pitch, because I imagine there's a lot of that, what would you tell folks that are trying to get their content published, especially in the book, whether it's memoir, fiction, or nonfiction? What would be the best advice you would give? Hire a good editor. <laughs> That's I'm serious about that. You know, somebody who is genuinely there to make your thing better, right? If if you get a book contract, you know, it's going to have an editor, hopefully depending on who picks it up and they'll do a certain thing. But even before that, you know, there are a lot of people doing independent editing. I do it. 
where it's I'm just going to read your thing and help you make it better. You know, there's there's going to be people who are bad editors and will try to change things. And it's still your book, right? You don't have to take any of their advice, but if you're going to pay them to do it, hopefully they give you good advice to make your thing better, right? That's my thing. Like, I want to get the best you, you and your work out there for people. It's not about me. You know, I have to hire people to edit my stuff um, because I have an independent publisher and things like that. And they, they're not only looking for typos and errors and things like that, but they're looking for how to make this the best that it can be. And so, yeah, hire a good editor. Um, but really, that's actually, I'll have to backtrack a little. That's the second thing you should do. The first thing is finish your manuscript, right? If you don't write it, there's nothing there for anyone to look at. So you have to put in the time to actually write it. And it, it's work, it's hard work, and you'll work hard for no reward for a long time and have to live with that and accept that the reward is putting your story on paper, whatever it is, whether it's a memoir, you know, an actual personal story like that or something fictional, which could still be very personal. So you have to write it first. You know, uh, just talking about writing isn't writing. It's helpful, but it's not a finished product. So um, some people think, think it's really hard to start and it can be, but there's a lot of people, just like we talked about earlier with college, there's a lot of people who start college and never finish. There are a lot of people who start books and never finish them. So you got to finish it. Definitely advice that I hope anybody that listens to it or entered into writing takes and consider. I know for sure, I'll definitely consider because I'll say this, when it comes to editing, I'm not the greatest person when it comes to editing my own stuff or others because I need to know where they come from before to get the idea. So I'm more like the writer doing the product rather than kind of viewing others to give them advice because I'm not, I don't know where if my advice is good or not. So who's to say, but yeah. for sure I definitely agree on the editing side. That's one of the main reasons why every now and then when I feel like I need another voice, outside of my racing group to tell me how it sounds from a structural or an opinion base. It definitely helped me a lot during that one year when I didn't have a media job of any capacity. Just kind of lean towards you to send you this kind of stuff. And I think over time, I feel like I've gotten better on it. Yeah, my styles have changed every year almost, it feels like, to where now I'm kind of asked to do opinion based. But keep it within the blend lines of news and then give my take and vice versa. That's not going to be easy for me because I'm more on the reporting end. But if that's what's going to make the site a little bit better on the viewership perspective, then I hope it works out. Because, I'm more, yeah. because I've been loyal to that site for two years now. Yeah, there, was eight, there were eight, ten of us when I arrived. Now there's really two, excluding my <laughs> editor-in-chief. It's really only down to two. It's been yeah, it's been rough for our site this year because all of them either bailed, 
One out of frustration. A couple of them were just utter shit, to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, I lost a writing job, a, a good, decent journalism job, uh, for a budget consideration because they needed more money for online graphics. And it was either keep me on or get better graphics. And, you know, they liked what I was doing, but graphics brought more people to the, to the page, so... Yeah. Crap happens. Yeah. If that, ha if, yeah, if that happens, graphics is one of those that I know I gotta work on the most because I feel like if I could get the graphic down. But here's, here's the thing: I'm not the most patient guy when it comes to all that tedious stuff when it comes to the graphics. Video, I could take all the time to work, but special effects and all of that stuff, it's gonna take a lot of patience for me to do it. You know what I mean? Well, there's there's two ways to go about it: be patient and figure it out on your own. Or work hard and save up the capital to pay somebody else to do it. It's always interesting to learn new things when it comes to being a media personnel. And I learned in that interview that it takes a lot of time to get the job done and see your vision become a reality. That's something I need to work on if I ever want to get this memoir published someday. First and foremost, I need, again, a definitive ending which is not easy at all. I've been writing on my journal since December 31st, 2017, and I don't know if I'll continue for 2021. I might as well, since I feel like I hope 21 will be a lot better than 20. And, I mean, don't we all? Anyways, in our second part, we finally get into the fun stuff. The real fun stuff is where we talk about music, and, and one of the many things that you're going to enjoy, I hope, is just how we see music from afar and how much... What we listened back in the day may continue on, especially with his son. And, and I even chimed in about my youngest brother, who is five years old, how certain music will probably stick around. And then where we realized back in the day, the, the stuff was much better. And I still stand by that to this day. Obviously, of course, there's always good stuff out there today. You just got to have to find it and fully appreciate it and understand the differences. Speaking of differences, is still WAP and number one on the Billboard charts. BTS is still number two, so there's your Hot 100 weekly update. Anyways, let's go back to the interview with TJ Trinchell. Let's talk about music for a bit, because every guest that I have, let's just talk about music. Like, I would describe my style of music as a hot potato. It's like a mess, where some days I'll listen to metal, like classic rock or metal, whether it's like Metallica, The Doors, or Santana, what have you. Other days, I'll listen to the independent stuff. It goes back to my QE days, where I would play whatever music that I have. Thinking in my mind, which kind of is the main reason why music's all over the place. Where do you <laughs> fall in that line of music? I love metal, but my favorite band is Joy Division, which is definitely not a metal band. But recently, I would say in the last two years, two or three years, I've been listening to a lot of Bruce Springsteen and classic, classic stuff from the 70s all the way to the newer stuff that he's been doing and some of the stuff that is both. Uh, one of my favorite albums recently is the recording of his Broadway show where a lot of it is those classic songs, but most of them are just him instead of the whole Eastery band. 
And so hearing something um, that you're used to having, you know, the Clarence Clemens saxophone and the Max Weinberg drums and little Stevie guitars and all of that boil down to just Bruce either on his guitar or on the piano and singing is incredible. You get to hear the real power of the songs as a song, as something that one person created that has a different life. And, and I absolutely love that. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of different live versions of the song Thunder Road, which is on his Born, in, or Born to Run album in the 70s. And it's interesting because the original studio recording has this place where uh, the lyric is, um, he uses the word boys, ghosts in the eyes of all the boys you left behind. But then as you listen to him throughout now 40, year, 40 years of that song, when he sings it now, it's ghosts in the eyes of all the men you left behind. And that's such a subtle change, but really important, I think, to show where he is a young man thinking as a boy versus he now in his 70s. It's hard to believe Bruce Springsteen is in his early 70s um, thinking man. And I just, I just absolutely love that. It's such a subtle change, but it says so much. Absolutely, for sure. Like mine right now is because back in college I was through the XX phase. These days I've been going through the Aces phase, but also consistently Metallica. But the most consistent one all throughout, still every now and then I'll listen to some Doors records. Because even if it's a song that the deep tracks, I think that's what they call it, yeah. where I grow more appreciative of those. That obviously you, that's I think that's what one of the Chris Jericho podcast episodes said it best. Where you appreciate the hits, but over time, when you listen to the T tracks, then you realize those are the really good stuff. Those are the very underrated ones out there. It really is, especially if you're listening to The Doors. You're not just listening to music, you are listening to poetry. Mm hmm. And that's the saying about some music that they have some element that they mastered. Like The Doors with Jim Morrison, they have the poetry. You have. Raymond Serg making organ piano sound very in with the times. Mm -hmm. Then you have Robbie and and John doing their own thing. Wait, Robbie dance more. Okay, I just want to double check. I didn't butcher it because <laughs> one episode I said Post Malone instead of Post Malone I said Moses Malone, the basketball player. So it's like different guy. Yeah. Different guy. <laughs> I kind of made it out as a running joke in my program. It's like, <laughs> and there's also there's also the one time where I said when I was explaining about Ricky Stenhouse, what was the reason? He had a mullet, and I instead of saying Ricky Stenhouse, I said Ricky Steamboat. No, one or the other. I said. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, every now and then I butcher the names. So I was thinking right per right name wrong. Wrong subject or right. person. Yeah. Yeah. I listened one. to a lot of Doors in my in my teens, and, you know, and started getting into the the books of poetry that 
Morrison wrote, and there's just some weird, crazy stuff in there, and I think it's amazing. I think if we were 500 years from now, and there's still things that are around, I think somebody would be more engaged with reading Morrison poetry than hearing The Doors music, because The Doors music is very much of its time. Like, it's great. You can listen to it now and enjoy it. It's, it's still great. It's still going to be great. But reading the poetry, I think, will feel more timeless. Yeah, for sure. Because something, text is an everlasting thing. Written form is an everlasting thing. The sound is they think that it's so, you can't really say it's everlasting because some people will say it's timeless. It fits well today. But when you hear it, is you'll know what's age and what's not. It just depends how the song lyrics and the time period it is. And that's the same when it comes to specifically hip hop. A lot of references are for its time. If you listen to it today, like young people will listen to it today, it's like they would not know about Morris Day or God forbid, maybe if we're in that time period, some people will wonder who's Biggie or who's Tupac or. Let me think of a better one. Eric B and Rackham. When they were ref they're referred to the rap records, people were saying, like, who are these guys? Yeah. It ultimately depends when it comes to the music and lyric lyrically. But when it comes to the Doors and a few other artists then and there, it could still be relevant. Like, all yeah. the songs from 1967, 1968 is still relevant today. Just different subject and different time periods. Like, Gordon Lightfoot's July, the song about July, about the, the city burnings and all that. Sure, it's about Detroit. But when you look at it right now, replace Detroit and put whatever city it might be and right. it's still relevant. Yep. Well, the same thing, uh, Bob Dylan's The Times They Are A-Changing. Listen to that and think that that was recorded today. Back in the day, had, like, songs are meant for certain subjects, but you could replace that subject with another one. It'll still match. It's still compatible. Yep. Well, rap diss tracks are like that. Like, you're not going to who are you going to hear, you know, if people are arguing in their songs? You know, if one person lasts but somebody else becomes obscure, it doesn't matter anymore. But if you're just, if you're writing a song about love or death or grief or the sun or even like beyond the sea, right? We still have oceans. Mm -hmm. For hopefully for a long time but you know those kind of things can still resonate more than oh that guy who made fun of me i'm gonna make fun of him yeah and yeah it's just like even like sweet home alabama people sometimes forget wondering why this such thing was about it's because of a neil neil young song that literally referred him in the lyrics and i think it was like after it came out it's like Neil Young appreciated Leonard Skinner's record because he felt like his was theirs was better than his and vice versa. It was like it's still relevant. Sure, it's become a meme due to the incestual mindset that people have, but it's you can at least still figure out stuff. Do you feel like such thing is still around on the because I feel like on the mainstream level it's not there anymore sometimes where songs are can be transcending. Because look, you have you have what is it, that guy six nine got had a number one song for one week, fell out of the charts in about a month. 
nowhere yeah. near the high 100. The Harlem Shake, as soon as it hit number one, it tanked after. But there are songs out there on the independent end, or even back then, that are ever a bit as good as what we have right now. It doesn't take much, honestly, when you look at the songs that are hitting number one to what they had back in back in the day, in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even a bit in the 90s. I think it's it, because I, A, because I'm old, and also because I have a young son who likes to listen to kids' bop versions of songs. Um, I don't get to hear a lot of contemporary music and unless it's one of these kids pop songs and then I'm like well who's the person who actually made this song I don't know I gotta go find that or usually this the song is so annoying that I, I just don't know so I don't listen to as much new I can't say I don't listen to as much new music because I'm listening to new music from older artists again Springsteen and things like that um so there's not as much, many new artists that I've been listening to lately. And I've got to go out on the limb here and say that that's maybe true for a lot of people. I just heard that vinyl records outsold CDs in the first six months of this year for the first time since 1984. That is actually pretty impressive because... Like, right now, I'm slowly building a vinyl collection. I think I only have, like, ten of them. I know I still have a couple that I got from the QE days as a Christmas right. gift. And are they, and they're not new music. No. It's old stuff. Or it's, it's reissues of think, old stuff. Yeah, most of them are reissues. Like, a, the, I have, like, the Asus new album I got through a vinyl. I'm trying to remember which one I got as a Christmas gift. Oh, yeah. Herb Alpert, that one I got from as a Christmas gift from QE. There was another <laughs> Christmas vinyl, so I have like a bag full of vinyls. I still have those two. It's like yeah, they're nice to keep. And I listen to the Herb Alpert album. I played I think once or twice in my show. It's like this is not bad. And then when I look back, it's like man, Herb, you said pretty co those type of songs. You'd think they're not commercial that were successful in the charts, but lo and behold, the help. Albert has some some success in those shirts. I think he had a couple number ones as well. So I was like, okay, I can live with it. But it sounded good nonetheless. So I was like, I'll I'll keep the. Not sure where I'm gonna put the vinyls eventually right. once it grows. But again, the lasting testament to music is that my seven year old knows the song Tequila. Okay, that's good. Because... I mean, he could if I start going do 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 do, he knows what song that is, right? He doesn't know what tequila is because he's seven, yeah. but he knows the song, right? And he knows things like Purple People Eater and Witch Doctor, you know, some of those old novelty songs. And that's, that's because of me. I was like, these are the songs I'm going to play for him, right? But he still also knows Baby Shark and things like that that are newer, right? So the joy of being a parent is getting to influence your children's musical taste and eventually they'll steer away from it but beyond that they'll end up coming back and go you know what this is what i really liked and thankfully my son loves watching these animated iron maiden videos where somebody made a bunch of video uh, cartoons with eddie as the main character and just the song plays over it and a bunch of weird stuff happens 
but I used to make, oh, they're hilarious. Just yeah, and he loves them, and he loves those, those songs, and I think that's great. Oh, for sure. Right now, with my youngest brother, who's five, it's Baby Shark was not one of them for me. I consider Baby Shark as an old song because of leadership camp when I was a delegate and a junior counselor a decade ago. Jeez, I'm old. <laughs> that was one of the camp traditions we did, Baby Shark and all. It's like, when that blew up, I think, who, which hockey team was it? Was it St. Louis? No, St. Louis was Gloria. Who was the Baby Shark team in the NHL? It should have been San Jose, but it wasn't. I think it was Tampa Bay. Whoever. No, wait. Baseball. No, I'm thinking baseball. That's where it blew up. And that was the Nationals, right? Yeah. Yeah, the Nationals did Yeah, because the St. Louis Blues was Gloria, in my opinion. Not my favorite Laura Brannigan song. One, because that's the team that beat the Sharks and put them in now. Oh, if, let me. I As a Sharks fan, it's pain. One. Because we're basically put in the box like, yeah, you guys were so trash. You're not invited. Go home. We'll see you in, see you in two years. Because we were one of like six or seven that our season was over at when the pandemic hit. It was over. And then when they resume, everybody but like the Sharks and like five others say, nah, you're done. Go home. Anyways, back to music. <laughs> back to music, of course. <laughs> He's My youngest brother is into one mom place. She's been playing a lot of music from Turkey for the past couple months. A couple of them I have in my Spotify playlist, my long Spotify playlist. Which <laughs> it's not even funny how much songs that I have ranging from all the time periods. But my time period is probably why I gravitate so much with Santana and The Doors for the longest of time because that's the stuff that I grew up listening or Poison and Motley Crue. In the case of Metallica, for me, it was after college that I fully, fully started to appreciate the music. Not just the big ones, but all across the board. See what I mean? We love some good banter and also rip myself a lot of the mistakes that I made, like Ricky Steamboat and Ricky Stenhouse and other folks along the line where I confuse them or mess up their names. We're going to continue talking about music. This is the reason why I paused this for a moment because the next subject it's kind of like a question that I've been wondering and I wanted to ask. Does he feel the same about one particular album that sold millions upon millions of copies? It's arguably, in some people's eyes, the greatest album from that particular band. You're going to hear about that because what he's going to say was very eye-opener. And that is the album experience. It boils down to it. And why DJ feels that it may be the most commercially successful album from that particular band. It's probably the worst due to that reason. And he stands by that to this very day. So with that being said, here is TJ's take on this particular album. I remember one post, I think, I remember one post a couple many years ago that you said something within the fine lines that the Black Album is probably their worst album out of the entire 10. Is that, did I got it right? I I still believe that. Okay, so I want to <laughs> I want to know. Okay, because some people will say Saint Anger or Load and Reload, but Black Album. I'm curious to know in that sense because I've listened to pretty much almost all of their entire albums. Like I have their first six and also a live CD of the Seattle show when, a couple years ago. The one that I worked at, 
before I ultimately left that stadium job for a better one at the arena where I do video. But yeah, just kind of like from your viewpoint, how, how do you see the Black Album as the worst compared to St. Anger, Load and Reload? It's inauthentic, right? As it, and, and that's so loaded and super pretentious of me to say something like that, right? Um, I just feel that it's it's a commercial album. It wasn't, it's not set up to be an album experience, right? Like when you, li when you listen to the Black Album, you listen to individual tracks. You're going to listen to Inner Sandman, or you're going to listen to The Unforgiven, or you're going to listen to Nothing Else Matters. And those are great songs. Wherever I May Roam is a great song. A Wolf and Man, to me, is a great song. But they don't feel like a whole album. So it's not to say that the songs themselves are the worst. I don't like Enter Sandman, just mostly because of popularity, right? And that's, that. again, that's super pretentious and to have a reason to not like a song. But I don't get an album experience, and so that's why I would say it's the worst album. That doesn't mean they're the worst songs, right? St. Anger, as an example, does not have as great as songs. Okay. The songs are not as good because of the transition to a new bass player, all the stuff that was going on during that time, trying to get this album out after so long and things like that. It's not, the songs aren't as good, but from an album perspective, it's more consistent. Like I can look at that and go, okay, all these songs belong together. And so to me, that makes it a better album. Like you listen to Master of Puppets and you go, okay, these are some of the greatest songs ever. But if you listen to the whole album, they're even better. Mm -hmm. And I get that with Master of Puppets, also Ride the Lightning, and Justice for All as well. But when it comes to Master of Puppets, it's like, you, for the, like that time period you understand how it goes. It was well-structured and it flows. When yeah. it comes to Black Album, there's some that match, then another song is complete opposite. And I felt the same way with Load. Listen to the whole entire thing. It's like, there's some consistency, but it's just other stuff that are just like, okay, maybe this or that, but just structure, yeah. lineup structures. Like, yeah. Well, and what's funny about that is I think Reload is better than Load. Just with fuel and memory remains, it honestly doesn't take a whole lot. Bias through the fact that I fuel was the first song I ever heard from Metallica through, <laughs> not not through NASCAR, through Hot Wheels Turbo Racing because yeah. <laughs> I was a vacation to Mexico in June of 2003. So I that was the first year I started watching NASCAR. So I did not knew much about NBC or TNT. So I listened, played that game. It's like. That song sounds cool. Then when I heard it through the NBC TNT telling us like, yes, I recognize this song. This is good. <laughs> and it kind of stuck with me ever ever since then. And I still ponder when they'll put fuel on a throwback race at Darlington, but time will mm -hmm. tell. Yeah. 
You know, and it's the same thing. I think Death Magnetic is an incredible album. Are the songs as good as Master of Puppets? No, they're pretty good. I like them a lot, but it still has that album consistency, and I and I like that, especially as I get older. I want to be able to have an entire experience of 45 minutes an hour instead of three to five, maybe six minutes at a time, or like those old Metallica songs where, you know, these eight minute longs with instrumentals. Yeah, so that's how I feel the same way with a couple albums where, and I know you mentioned about Anna Sandman as far as like your reasons why you're not on board with it. It's kind of how I feel what, what was it? Shape of You with Ed Sheeran because that's not how I associated Ed Sheeran back back when that song came. It's like, that's not how I remember him. It's like, no, I'm not on board with this. And I feel that with some other songs, not as that not in that level because Ed Sheeran for me, I'm not crazy about him. I'll openly say that. But when I understand certain artists' structures and then you hear something different, it's like, no, it does not compute with me too well. And there's a couple of those artists on the independent side that are trying to blend with the mainstream. Some of them work, some of them don't, where I'm like, maybe this album is good, but not as great as the previous albums. And sometimes I have that vibe, and I just got to sort it out, and that's okay. But then I have other artists to listen to. It's like, all right, those are my flavors of the month. I'll listen to those on a routine basis for the month, two months, maybe a year. And there's songs that I'm like, looking back, it's like, I still remember those times, but I'm not ready to reflect on it a whole lot. Yeah. After the well, experience happened. Well, and I feel the same way about the Foo Fighters. Dave Grohl is an amazing talent. I have a ton of respect for him, but the Foo Fighters will never mean as much to me as Nirvana. Yeah. And that that's basically all, you know, it's like I never saw either of those bands live, right? But I would go to a Foo Fighters concert if I had the chance and that would, and I would have a good time and I would know some of the songs and that'd be great. And I love that other people love the Foo Fighters, but there's just something just different enough that, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't speak to me as much. And that doesn't mean they're bad. You know, I would never say Foo Fighters suck because it's not true. <laughs> it's just not what I want to listen to, you know, and, different things happen like that you know it's like again massively popular with great songs acdc's black album great album i love it i love those songs i don't like it as much as i like highway to hell or dirty deeds done dirt cheap mm -hmm. it's it's just it's just different enough yeah right? and that's how i feel with the xx like their latest album it was a completely i see you it's completely different from XX and Coexist to where I think it's more the fact I was in a transitional phase. Like those first two albums spoke to me very heavily because it was during my college time. When the latest album back in 2017, it spoke to me to a degree. They're great. There's some good songs out there, but when it comes to connectability, it's completely different. And, and where to, whereas like Injustice for All speaks a lot more to me every now and then compared to Ride of Lightning or Master of Puppets, it's yeah. not where I stand at a certain time period. Yep. And this goes with the concerts as well. I've only been to a few of them in my life to where, like, 
if I'm going to go two one, I gotta know I'm in heavily into it. Like next year because it was supposed to be a couple weeks ago, but that obviously didn't happen with the pandemic. Like the Super Show with Joan Jett, Poison, Def Leppard, and Motley Crue. I may be going for that's my middle school dream. Go to a Poison and Motley Crue concert. It's whole fingers crossed they'll still happen next year. But you also have Def Leppard and Joan Jett, which is like not bad. This is this is worth bang with your buck. But I'm not as familiar with their mu most of their music compared to the other two for sure because that's how I grew up. But I'm still no, I'll enjoy it. They're expensive as hell, and they said a ballpark. I'll be in the ballpark seating area, but it's just a matter of the experience. Because when I was at the, when I worked at Metallica show in 2017, where you had Gajoria and Event Sevenfold, the one thing I said is like, when it comes to Metallica concert, keep me inside the stadium. Don't, work, right. don't make me work outside. Sure, <laughs> it would have been neat to hear Event Sevenfold, but that's just how that's how my job was. I had to be positioned in, at the other sides of the guest service field before I decided. I it ran its scores. My guest servicing days are done. I need to focus on my career. Period. Yep. Hey man, I don't blame him. I can understand because there's some great songs from the Black Album, but there are some that I'm like, eh, it's odd, it's out of place, it's not the strongest point. But then again, I feel the same way as so many artists, and you got to hear that. All right, we're down to the last bit of our interview, and that is talking about movies. In fact, the last movie I saw was Knives Out, as far as the series is concerned. As far as overall, I think it was Freshman Fall. You know, the one where DJ Tanner and Zach Morris were in, that is very hokey, but very serious. Hokey in some elements, but very serious due to the fact that it involves a very subjectable matter. If you have not seen that movie in its entirety, as you said, you should, because there's some elements that are still relevant to today. It's dated especially with the music because you had the Macarena in there. But the message is very raw and clear. So if you haven't seen it, I suggest go give it a look. It's on Amazon Prime, by the way. Anyway, with that being said, let's go wrap up our interview, our two-part interview, talking about movies. All right, we talked about music. We talked about the college experience. We talked about racing. Now... I'm curious to know when it comes to movies because there's been a lot of movies out there that are great in a certain time period. There's some that are very controversial. Where do you stand as far as movies over the past couple of years as far as quality compared to other ones in the past? The first one that I want to talk about is the superhero movies. I love them. I think they're so much fun. And I know a lot of people who drag on them because they're formulaic and not as surprising as they might have been at one point. And I can understand that, but they're still just so much fun. Like when they're when they're not fun, like first of all, I like the DC movies. I like Batman. I like Superman. So I'm not gonna trash those movies because I like those too. But I think they can still be they're engaging characters, right? And as things get weirder and weirder, those kind of movies are what we need, we need to be able to see good guys beat up bad guys and actually have real results and still have, you know, some consequences. So that's why it's important that Tony Stark dies and he needs to stay dead. Comic books have a history of bringing back characters who died all the time. And I think 
the movie trajectory for each timeline, you got to keep people dead who are dead. Yeah, and I think what the Avengers movies did an excellent job to doing that because it's established the few that I watched, my brother harps on me all the time because I haven't watched all of them. But for me, understanding it to a point, they build it up where Iron Man is the main adventure. So naturally, he'd be the one that would take down Thanos, and he'd be the one that sacrifices his life to do it. And that I totally understand, because you don't see that. Even Infinity War, for example, it ended on a low point, rather than on a positive, which sometimes you don't have, but you knew, pun intended, the end game was going to happen, but just the oh, suspense yeah. of the patience. I think that's how you should movies should be done sometimes. It needs to be structured that way. You can't have the superhero always end on a high note. It just doesn't happen all the time. Unlike one wrestling company that it's got to be that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, that some when we have more time, some bit of time in the future, we'll talk about wrestling and all of that. Yeah, we'll do a whole other wrestling episode. Yeah, because I haven't talked about rest, wrestling enough in this program because I haven't been... I still casually pay attention to it on Twitter. I look at it, but all that. But when it comes to following it, watching it, I've been watching it in about two years, but I still yeah. see and understand what's going on to a point. But we were talking about Bruce Springsteen. Have you seen Blinded by the Light at all? I haven't, and I really need to. I need to see that and Yesterday, the movie about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yep, those are the two I need to see because I was gonna watch them in theaters, but a lot of stuff happened where it just didn't fit. Blinded by the Light, I'm intrigued to see it just because it's an '80s, it's set place in the '80s. When it comes mm-hmm. to anything '80s related, I'll watch if time allows. <laughs> like literally, the last movie I saw in theaters was Knives Out, and honestly, that's not oh. a bad movie to to end. That's not a bad movie to say the last one I saw before the pandemic. Yeah. Honestly. I liked that a lot. The last movie I saw in the theater was a special screening of the 1933 King Kong. So, wow, <laughs> special screening for King Kong. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which was a blast for me. I love I love those old movies. Well, that's good. The only ones that I saw that were like anniversary edition recently was Cruel Intentions. That's the one. Yeah. That <laughs> one was an odd movie, but I ended up like you know. This is an enjoyable movie. It, it's like one of those, I think, Shakespearean type of plot lines. So where it's like, okay, it's one of those Shakespearean plot lines. Yeah. If I talk to my brother how he views it, he's going to view it completely different than I am because he's a, he graduated with a degree in film, so he knows more about it. Probably going to get into a debate. So I have to make sure when I have him on to keep it neutral because it's not... And it better bring, it better bring his microphone as well because I'm not going to be sharing my microphone with his. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. great. Anyways, final thoughts before we wrap up this episode. Kind of like, if you were to describe this episode we've had, I know we'll probably ha- we'll definitely have one in the future. What would it be? And I just love catching up with you. You know, you're one of those, like I said, the people that you you want to follow and see how they do after the time that you were spent more time with them, and and so just getting to catch up with you and talking about, like I said, those common interests that you and I have that we didn't necessarily have with other people who were around, I think is, is just a blast. And I love how deep you get with 
you're you're not reliant just on what's going on now, but your your willingness to look into the past is fascinating. No, for sure, it's definitely a pleasure to have you on Absolute Without Doubt because when I started this program, you were definitely one of the first ones that I thought of to have you on. It may take in a couple months, but hey, eventually it had to happen. So I figured now was the perfect time to have a guest. With that being said, where can people find you, especially your books that are already out? The best places to find me are at TJ Tranchel, all one word, dot com, and various social media. Uh, Twitter's the easiest way to find me, just at TJ underscore Tranchel, and I post all the information to find my books and signings and things like that there. I'm also, books are available on Amazon as well, just by searching my name and my stuff will come up. Excellent, excellent. For sure, we'll definitely have, as we mentioned already, a couple more discussions about the wrestling. But for now, it's time to shut the lens. You heard it all. We talked about pretty much everything. There was no punches pulled. It was definitely a blast to talk with TJ. What I did not include in that bit is that we actually had to wrap it up because some instances we could talk about two hours or more, but due to my brother's obligations of therapy, we had to cut it short. But the problem was I misunderstood what he told me as far as timing is concerned. He said 3 o'clock. Problem was his therapy was at 2 p.m., I'm basically sitting in the recording room an hour than I should have. I started at 1, thinking I'd be, okay, therapy's at 3, I'd be wrapping up by 3. No, what happened was, his was at 2, I didn't hear that bit. I always thought it was 3 o'clock. It's usually at 3 p.m. anyways. I'll definitely like to have him on my program one day, but I'll give you the heads-up warning for Season 2. Is that he is very opinionative. And that's all I'm going to say about that ordeal. The next episode is the season finale. And while I'm wrapping it up before I turn 26, I feel like it's a good time to take a break. I feel like 20 is a good number to wrap up the opening season. And once season two comes along, we're going to have more guests. We're going to have more stories to tell. Things will be a little bit more organized. And maybe I can have as many guest recordings come out in a row. Time will ultimately tell. And also depends on the guests' time period in these tumultuous times. That we're living in right now. At the LT at the LT at the LT files on Twitter, Instagram Luis D Torres94 L-U-I-S D S N David T-O-R-R-E-S94. Behind the exploratory lenses, there's a Facebook page for it. Make sure you're typing in and give it a like. And where can you find this podcast that you're listening to right now? You can listen to it on Spotify, Google, Apple, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, now available on Amazon Music. Yes, indeed. This past week, I got the email that my podcast is available on that outlet. So now, six fine outlets you can listen to behind the exploratory lessons. To find all my works and photos over the years, Luis Torres Multimedia. Type in LuisDTorres.com. You'll find all my works and vice versa. But for now, until we meet again, I hope you enjoy this episode because the finale is going to be a reflective period. You never know what will be on behind the exploratory lenses. In the meantime, catch you guys later.
I had contemplated one day of doing a Twitter puppet account saying, since the, the Stanley Cup got the witness before the Sharks hold it. Like Mario Andretti, an IndyCar, a dog. <laughs> there were so many things that the Stanley Cup people were in the Stanley Cup were involved, but not the San Jose Sharks. So it's like, eventually I gotta go make one. I don't know when. Maybe never. 